Wedding Friends. You have got gospel music on a holiday weekend with a lady preacher talking about marriage and slavery. So y'all done hit the jackpot this morning. Uh, no, but actually, seriously, I'm a lady preacher. That was gospel music, and we're going to talk about marriage and slavery. Um, I am super excited. Good morning, All Souls. My name is Catherine. I work with our 6th through 12th grade students here at All Souls, and I love them. And I'm so pumped that we will start youth at 1045 outside starting next week. So super excited for that. There will be donuts. <laughs> Truth. Um, it uh, is so exciting. I'm going to be able to continue along in our beloved community series with you guys this morning. We're talking about how we come together um, in and through with new identity in Christ, right? So if you are a Christian, you are not who you used to be. You have a new identity, and you are called to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the transformation of your spirit. Now, normally at the end of May, um, we do a Youth Sunday where we have students um, who help participate. They lead liturgy. They help with our worship, uh, and we get an opportunity to celebrate our graduating seniors. Due to the events of the world, uh, we have not had an opportunity to do that this year, but I did want to take a minute and give a shout-out to our three graduating seniors this year. We have uh, Olivia, Christian, and Isaiah. We are super excited. They are going to Kennesaw. We've got some entrepreneurship happening there, Honors College um, at UGA uh, and Mercer. So they're not here right now, but please join me as we celebrate them. Uh, and all of their accomplishments. So Olivia, Christian, Isaiah, if you guys are watching, if you guys are listening, um, we love you. And we are so proud of you, and we cannot wait to see what God does through you guys in the world. Uh, this Sunday is also the fifth Sunday of the month, which means that it's Missions Sunday. And here it also is what that means uh, for us generally is that our kids downstairs during our 9 o'clock Sunday school hour uh, got to hear from Taffany, who's our global missions coordinator, uh, a little bit about ways that they can learn to live selflessly, uh, which is really a neat and unique opportunity. Up here in the 1045 service, after I'm done this morning, we'll actually get an opportunity to hear from a couple of our global folks uh, about some of their own reflections on this Ephesians passage. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. So last week, uh, Stephen walked through Ephesians 4. Uh, and he talked about how the gospel gives us a new identity and a new mindset and a whole new set of practices as we put off the old self and we live in light of the gospel. And this transformation is a shift from the inside out, and it shifts and adjusts the way we are to approach all aspects of our life as people who are living in the light. Um, it's meant to be a holistic change. And these things that Paul talks about um, are just as relevant and true to us today as they were in the first century Roman world when he was writing. If we believe that what Paul tells us here in the book of Ephesians is true, that we are to be new creations in Christ, we are no longer who we used to be. And like all new identities, there are things that we need to learn to adjust this new way of life and this new perspective that we've taken on. So today we're going to be looking at uh, the second half of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, and we're going to unpack some of the very specific directions that Paul gives us about this new lifestyle and these new perspectives. Um, so I'm going to start, I'm going to read uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 21, and we'll go through 6, 9. Uh, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so if you've got a Bible, feel free to grab it. Um, if you're here with us, we've got it on the worship guide. 
Um, but my friends, let's hear what it is that Paul has to tell us. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all of the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. Work, for, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slave or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we petition to you this morning as we jump into your word and we navigate through some of the hard things. Lord, let your spirit be in this place that we can be open to your word and the things you desire for us to hear and learn so we can interact as a better community with one another. Amen. Now, um, the bulk of our time this morning is going to be spent on three super simple, very clear, and definitely not controversial topics. Uh, parenting, marriage, and slavery. Oh, boy. Um, I'm only halfway kidding <laughs> when I say that. Uh, we will be talking about those three topics, which there is a comma between those, by the way. It's not like parenting and then marriage and slavery. They're three separate things. Um, we're getting there. You're warming up. Uh, they are definitely not simple, uh, and they are, they are definitely controversial. Um, but a couple of things I want to lay out. Um, as we start to look at what Paul says, I want to be clear about what I say when God desires for us to flourish as men and women created in his image. And yet, because of sin and brokenness in the world, these topics are sensitive. There are, within our very body, within our family in this room right here, tremendous wounds and pain, fear, abuse, and evil in these topics. Um, 
and not just in this room, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our communities, and in our world. Uh, these experiences can and have been, maybe you're walking actively through them right now, very severe and very intense, and I pray for your grace as we approach these things together. Um, I, I want you to know that God loves you, and he longs for you to feel his presence and his joy and all the things that we experience as part of the new humanity in Christ Jesus. Now, we can't jump into, chapter, uh, starting here at verse 21, um, these three big topics without looking at what Paul talks about previously in chapter 5. Um, there could be oodles of sermon series on things about living in the light. Um, and what the Spirit does when it comes and dwells in us. But the, the important big concept for us here to understand is that as we come together in unity in Christ, as the beloved community, we are given parameters to live as Christians, right? With discernment and with the Holy Spirit upon us, we're given boundaries and we're given freedom because the way that we live matters. It doesn't just matter to the world around us, but it matters inside of our own hearts, it matters inside of our own homes, and it matters within our relationships. Uh, the freedom that comes from Christ is a humanizing freedom. It is a freedom to be fully who you are meant to be. That's what these parameters are for. And we're given scripture and the Holy Spirit and those in the faith who have gone before us to help us navigate and discern what it is that pleases God so we can live fully, as fully as we can, on this side of heaven as part of God's new creation. Um, now, when I say things like parameters or boundaries, uh, some of you may feel a certain way about that. Some of you may feel as if your freedom is being infringed upon or your style is being cramped. And I understand that because in my house, I live with an anarchist. I mean, toddler. Um, <laughs> boundaries, freedoms, and limits. There'll be a picture of her up here on the screen in a minute. Uh, boundaries, freedoms, and limits are always being tested. Yep. In our house, this is Eliza. She's 21 months old. She is full of adventure and curiosity and excitement and danger. Uh, and if you're a parent, you understand, right? Um, it hits you one day totally out of the blue, right? You have a new baby. You have this excitement like, oh, they just found their fingers. Or like, oh, they just set up for the first time. Um, they know how to play peekaboo, right? You're seeing this like small like blob thing, become like a hu human person. Um, and it's amazing <clears throat> to see their brains in action, right? But then, just as you start to enjoy your toddler becoming more independent, like getting their own sippy cup out of the cabinet, um, you realize they're also starting to think for themselves. And there's a moment of horror that comes across every parent when they realize they're becoming a little too smart for their own good. Right? It's one thing to clap and cheer when your kiddo figures out how to put like that little square block inside the little square shape thing, right? Um, <clears throat> but then you start to think about it and you realize they're learning how to manipulate you. Like for example, my daughter had jello for dinner last night. My husband and I didn't have jello for dinner last night. Frankly, I don't know how that happened. Um, walking through this, y'all. This is like real time, real life. Right? This, <laughs> this terrifying realization as a parent starts to grip you, right? This tiny person actually doesn't need to do what you say. I mean, like they ought to, but they don't need to, right? You can scream and shout and jump up and down, but they are an entirely separate person from you. They can straight up refuse to obey you and they will hold out until you grow old and die. 
uh, it's generally just a matter of who gives up first, really, right? Um, and now, to be fair, it's not that this reality had not occurred to me, right? I knew I was giving birth to like a, a human with a brain, um, but like many first-time parents, I think I had this ideal vision in my head of like democracy, right, where I was going to be like the appointed ruler. Um, that's a lie. Uh, and then Eliza is becoming, you know, this own person. She has this identity of her own. Like my husband and I have both realized, like we were, we were just wrong. That's not the way it is. And so again, anarchy. So this whole experience, right? Parenting. And if, you, if you're not a parent, just like talk to anybody you know who has a child, right? Um, but this whole experience of toddler and parent is the most perfect example that I can possibly think of when it comes to this text, right? In my experience short, under two years, but in my experience, parenting is the most clear and explicit picture I can ever paint of how desperately we need Jesus, right? We need the gospel, right? You see, because if it weren't for the presence of Jesus in our life, we would kind of be like my toddler who doesn't know the rules, just kind of doing things that we thought were right and kind of felt like, oh, like I'm just being like a human, but there's no foundation or basis of truth or consequence, because if my toddler didn't follow the parameters and the foundations that I laid out for her about what is and is not safe and acceptable in our household, she would probably not be here. <laughs> she would fare very, very, fare very poorly. But luckily for us as Christians, we do have the presence of Jesus in our lives. And as Christians, we're part of this new community, and God longs for our lives to be transformed because of this. So how are we supposed to show that we have been transformed? Chapter verse, chapter 21, nope, chapter 5, verse 21, lays this out really clearly for us. And this is part of why I really like the New Living Translation. It says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another because of our love for Jesus, because of our respect for Christ. Right? We live in community, and we respect ourselves enough to lower ourselves to one another because of our love for God and our new identity in Jesus. All right, practical. How do we do this? Paul gives us three very specific examples of what it looks like in spirit-guided relationships and how the gospel should affect the home, how to act within them, um, and how we're to navigate the world with these kind of structures in place. And Paul talking to these first century Romans the world is not that different then than it is now. Uh, Paul is encouraging these Christians to live life a little differently. Uh, in sociology, there's this concept called a contrast community. Have you ever heard of a contrast community? It's this space where if you're part of a contrast community, you're part of a, a group of people who live based off of a different set of standards than the world around them. <clears throat> but this group, instead of just hiking off and living in the desert or finding a mountain and never interacting with anybody, uh, the community intentionally situates itself in a culture, in work, in play, in eating, in living, in relationship, but they live differently. And that's what we're called to do, right? This, this new community, this creation is living out of holiness. And for us, this community is living not for our own gain, but out of respect for Jesus himself. So... <clears throat> let's take a look here at the first relationship in community that Paul wants to speak to, marriage. I want to lay out an understanding here very initially, a presupposition, if you will, right? 
Marriage was designed by God to articulate something about his truth to the world. Now hear me when I say this. If you are not married, that does not mean that you are not living into the design that God has for you. Nor does it mean that your life does not articulate the things that God desires for you to articulate. But rather, if you are married, your marriage takes two people who are created in the image of God, who are equal in the eyes of God, who are worthy of dignity and value and full of worth, and joins them together to complement each other in a covenant relationship to help paint a full picture of God and his goodness and relationship. Right, we see that in Genesis 1. Beautiful, <clears throat> perfect. Then Genesis 3 happens. And Adam and Eve lay the broken foundation for relationships by listening to sin and by being separated from God forever. The curse in so many ways that now affects us is that humanity is now going to spend the rest of creation clawing over one another. Right? Men have sin nature. And that sin nature is rebelling against God and dominating over women. They will use their strength to suppress, to exploit, to manipulate, to domineer, to oppress, and to destroy women in the world, in the homes, and in the church. And friends, if we are Christians who love the Bible and long to live as members of the beloved community and as new creations in Christ Jesus, then we are the church. And the church ought to be the first people advocating for the voice of women the honor of women, the dignity of women. We need to be fighting with every bit of energy that we have to create a context where this is a place where women are honored and valued as everything God made them to be, and they are able to flourish as image bearers of God. Domineering lordship and exploitation is the curse. This is not part of God's design. And women, I'm going to call out sin where I see it, women, Resenting men is the other side of brokenness. Clawing the way to win and to prove a point over a man or over another woman is just as much the curse and manipulation as men. There is a mutuality in this sin, and we all need Jesus. Now remember, as new members of this community, Jesus reconciles us to God and to his design. So what is God's design? Verses 25 and 26 here say that husbands are to lay down their lives for the flourishing of their wives. They are called to mirror Jesus' relationship with the church, to give provision, and to give care. Men, you are called to sacrifice yourself for your wife. You need to sacrifice your ambition for the sake of your wife finding and following her call. You need to sacrifice rest for the sake of your wife finding rest. Lay down your ambitions, your self-serving interests, your agenda for the benefit and flourishing of your wife and your family. This call is called servant leadership. It's not a call to use your life to dominate or to maintain power, but it's also not the call to live in passivity. God's design for husbands is that of strength, leadership, sacrifice, courage, and direction. If you're a married person, remember that individually you reflect God, but also your combined nature is the reflection of the Imago Dei. So to use the scriptural truths laid out here to say anything other than that, it's not what scripture is saying. Now, women, wives, remember, we're not off the hook. 
We are called to embrace, to respect, and to support our husbands. We have our own calling to leadership according to our unique gifts, not to societal stereotypes. So look, who are you as a woman? Who are you as a wife? This is gonna have every marriage and every family and every relationship and every home look a little bit different. And that's okay. In fact, it's, it's better than okay because that shows the diversity and the complexities of the Imago Dei himself. So now I'm going to talk about everybody's favorite word. The word submit in verse 22. This does not mean to roll over and obey everything. It means to embrace the servant leadership of your husband, wives, and to affirm and encourage them. As husbands, you affirm and encourage your wives. When husbands fail, there is pain. When wives fail, there is pain. We need to work together as a team to flourish for the family and for relationships and for our communities. Having said all of that, the goal at the end of the day is not marriage. <laughs> right? Look with me at verse 31. This mystery that Paul talks about, this mystery that is marriage, opens our eyes to Christ's coming. And this transformation of two becoming one allows us to see what the mystery is all about. The point isn't, what can I do to make this work out for my own personal gain, right? But the point is that when we operate out of sacrificial love and respect for one another, when we honor one another, we begin to see the beauty and the depth that is the love that Jesus has for his church. That the church receives the love of God through Christ and is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a community, we look different. So now let's look at the second relationship that Paul talks about. The scriptural vision for the family. Now, can I just say, first of all, look at chapter 6, verse 1. How cool is it? That very first word. Paul addresses children. He literally says, children, obey your parents. It says that in all the translations. I looked. He didn't say, parents, tell your kids that I told you to tell them to obey you. Right? Right? I love this because this assumes that when this letter is being read for the first time, that there are children in the audience. Like, this is first century family ministry realness, y'all. Like, this is awesome. Like, if kids are good enough to be read, like, the, the letter of Paul, like, let's have them in church. That may have been a small soapbox. Um, but that, that calls to us to take a minute and to reevaluate, right, as adults, how we view children. Having said that, um, we talk about families. Similarly to how we just finished talking about marriages, there can be a lot of complications, right? Families bring so much joy, and they can bring so much pain. And I think it's possible, I have friends who I've talked to about this, for us to believe that Christ will come and transform the world over, but he will not be able to transform my family. That kind of thinking limits God. I mean, it means we're saying that we're willing to believe that Christ's redemption only goes so far. When we stop and say, like, we think, like, oh, surely, like, God could never change this. You might not say that out loud, but your action or your inaction makes that pretty clear. And I wonder how many of us stop believing in Christ's redemption when it comes to the brokenness in our families. How many of us believe that Christ can change the world but probably can't change what's going on in my living room? The call of Christ is to follow him. And part of that following means going out on mission to the world. 
But part of that following is staying home and living as if Christ is real in your own homes, within your own families. And that's not easy, but you're not in it alone. Christ is here to help. The call for children here is to obey their parents, not out of some blind obligation, but instead to bring honor to Christ. The gospel reminds us, if you're young, you don't have to wait to live for Jesus. Right? If you're a Christian, you can do it now, today, by obeying your parents. There's not like some like invisible benchmark of like 18, like, oh, now you're welcome to the community. Like, no. Verse 4 speaks to how hard that is, though. Right? Like how hard it is for kids to obey their parents. And you know why? Um, because parents are broken and sinful people. Verse 4 even says it. It says, fathers, parents, do not provoke your children by ang to anger by the way you treat them. Right? This speaks to our brokenness and humanity overflowing into the things that we're doing in our parenting. Right? And so if you're a parent, like, we have to be purposeful in recognizing our own crap. Right? Our arbitrary nature, the inconsistencies that we have with boundaries, our selfish exercise of authority. And don't get me wrong, like I got a toddler, though, because I said so. There is a time and a place for because I said so. But our parenting role is limited. We got good news. God's not. The gospel isn't. As children grow and develop, Christ changes our relationships. And even if he doesn't necessarily change the relationship between a parent and a child, um, he changes us in our hearts, and we can then respond differently. When God calls us to honor our parents, he knows that some parents are hard to love, are hard to admire, are hard to accept, are hard to talk to. But you can honor your parents even if it's really hard to love them or admire them or accept them or talk to them, because if God commanded it, he's going to provide a way for you to obey that, even if it doesn't look like what you think it should look like. And as parents, being part of this new community, it changes us as well, right? When the whole story of God frames every part of a family's existence, parents stop seeing their children as like many humans whose behavior needs correcting. <laughs> they start seeing their children as potential or actual, if they have claimed faith in Christ, brothers and sisters in Jesus. And when that adjustment happens, parents, that changes everything. When was the last time that you looked at your kid and you said, I'm a brother or sister to you in Jesus, and that's how I'm going to treat you. That's how I want you to pursue your faith. That's how we're going to lean in our family. Not often enough if you're in my household. Our desire as parents will adjust from our kids needing to be amended as a reflection on our parenting or behavior to longing for them to be a part of this community and live in the promises and the fullness of Jesus. All community members, parents, non-parents like, find yourself a parent, right? Seek to pursue after the spiritual discipleship and growth of the children in our church. Finally, Paul talks about the relation of a slave to their master. Slavery. Um, this is a charged word because of the realities of history. Um, we think, at least I think, of the Atlantic slave trade. Right, where people were stolen from their homes and their communities and their families um, and shipped across the world for the wealth and building up of colonies. Um, I don't want to dismiss or negate that part of history, but I think it's very important as we read this passage to put on the cultural glasses of what first century Rome would look like, which is different than the Atlantic slave trade many of us may have in our minds. 
On average, most historians agree that 30 to 50% of the population at this time was enslaved in some capacity, right? The vast majority of these slaves are what we call bond slaves. Um, it was not based on any kind of ethnic division. This was not like a societal, social division. Um, instead, it was kind of the equivalent of going bankrupt or being in debt, right? So in this time, there's no welfare. We don't have unemployment. Uh, we don't have government assistance for people who are in debt or who can't afford things. So people would become slaves. Uh, they would work and earn and buy back their freedom, many of whom did. Um, and it would cycle through, right? Somebody could be enslaved and then free and then enslaved and then free throughout the course of their lifetime, right? However, let it be clear that this still has the horrifying background of one human being being the property of another human being, and that circumstance is ripe for the flourishing of sin. So Paul's calling here in verse 5 is specifically for the Christian slave. Paul speaks to the relationship that they are to have with their masters. And he reminds the slaves that their obligation is to Christ. Because though they may legally have a master, they know that they actually belong to Christ for eternity. The motivation for slaves to obey, and, and I tell our students this all the time, if there's something repeated in scripture, we need to be paying attention to it. Paul says this motivation four times in four verses. It's because we are to live our life differently. Right, because we're Christians, we're part of this new community, we're part of that contrast community for new believers. Now, Paul doesn't say, slaves, don't worry about your master because your real master is Jesus, so do what you want. Right? That is, that is not a good move. Right? It's not the best way to release a new identity to the world around you, to this humanity. Right? The more powerful indication of the gospel is that regardless of what your identity is in the world, as slave or as free, that your actual identity is so shaped by Jesus and what he has done for you that you desire to serve well. So slaves are told to obey out of respect for Christ. And masters, Christian ones, are accountable to the same level of authority. Right? Christian masters are told to abandon the threat of violence because as a Christian you know that no one person belongs to another person. We belong to Christ and so our identity is shaped. I love Paul. Y'all, I love Paul. Oh, and also, Jesus doesn't play favorites. Boom. Have a nice day. So while Paul doesn't come out and say, abolish slavery, it's not of Christ, and as a personal aside, I don't know why he doesn't say that. I mean, this guy was like shipwrecked in prison, like all the time. What are you afraid of? I don't know. I'm going to ask him that on the other side. But he does kind of say it, right? Because he's abolishing the very nature of slavery by readjusting the thought patterns of who the true master is, right? So Paul is convicted that if he can convince these communities of people who have their new identity in Jesus, if, they, if he can so ingrain the story of the cross and the ethic of love and holiness and mutual submission, all because of the new creation and the new identity that we have in the gospel, that we're going to reshape the world because we're reshaping the way people think. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. My friends, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. 
And that is a revolutionary idea. In each one of these declarations of, of these three relationships of marriage, of parenting, and slavery, Paul is a revolutionary, right? And this is a new revolution, right? This is, this is the revolution that revolutionizes revolutions and revolutionaries. Because before this, a revolutionary was taking up arms and fighting. But now Paul reminds us that as members of this new transformed community of Jesus followers, we're called to do the opposite of the thing that has kept the machine of the world going for thousands of years. Because the cross is where the world stops and revolution begins. The cross is where the violent accomplishments of humans clawing and dominating each other stops and we declare our new identity in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul knew that the most effective way to reshape and influence society was not a protest or a political process that you may or may not have had access to. Instead, it was through the starting of little communities of Jesus followers who took on a new identity and who did things differently. So as we look through the lens of the gospel story, and we allow the spirit to move in our churches and in our community, the cross begins to shape us. Life becomes about telling the story of the cross in every relationship and in every interaction. About the redemptive love of Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, and with all of those around us throughout the ends of the earth. Amen.